0: Our sermon text for this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and we are going to pick up the reading at verse 5 this morning for the sake of context. Beginning at verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in this text that as a church we must be willing to humbly show loving service toward one another. We need to, as we see in the text, have the same mind, the same attitude toward one another that the Lord Jesus had toward us. He, we learn in the text, willingly humbled himself by veiling his divine glory in our flesh, in our human nature. He took on human form. In order that he might come to the earth and accomplish our salvation. And that's what Paul, as we see, explains in verses five through eight, the what we refer to as the humiliation of Christ. That though Christ was in the form of God, he did not use his status as the second person of the Trinity in order to avoid uh, not serving us, not serving mere creatures. Uh, but we read instead that he willingly humbled himself, and he did so from the greatest height imaginable. What was the height? John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What was the height? Well, we see that Jesus is describing his pre-incarnate glory the glory that he had with the Father and with the Spirit as our triune God there was worshipped by the angels and all the host of heaven. And it's from that height we see in the text, that glorious existence that he humbled himself by veiling himself in flesh. And we see becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now in our text this morning, Paul, we see, takes us from the depths of his humiliation back to the heights again of his exaltation. We've seen how low Christ humbled himself, and now we will see how high the Father has exalted his Son. As we see first, Christ is exalted. Christ is enthroned because of his obedience. As we uh, look at verse 9 of this passage, I'm sure you notice that there is a turning point at which Paul moves from Christ's humiliation uh, to his exaltation and we see that the turning point is signaled by the word uh, therefore. Therefore God has highly exalted him. So we see that Paul in a sense, takes us to this scene in heaven. Jesus is ascended. And Paul there shows us that Jesus is there. He's there at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's there exalted and glorified. So, In a sense, what Paul is showing us is that John 17, verse 5, has now been fulfilled. John 17, verse 5, again, being Jesus' prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That has been fulfilled. As Jesus has now been exalted, as he has been enthroned in his ascension. You know, the question comes in uh, why? Why has Jesus been highly exalted? Why, why is he now enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God the Father? Because, you know, let's say that you walked in on your family as uh, they were watching the Olympics. You walked in, they're watching the Olympics, and you glance at the TV, and, and you see at, on the TV that one of the athletes is there and he's being cheered and praised, and they're on the podium, and the athlete is at the top step of, of the podium. And you know, you glance at the TV, and you might ask yourself, why is that person um, being praised in that way? Why is that person there? What did that athlete accomplish, right, to receive such praise? What's so special about that person? And, you know, this is something like what we see in our text this morning. Jesus is the one who is now highly exalted. Again, not just exalted, but we see highly exalted. He is now seated at the place of power and authority in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So why is he there? What did he accomplish that makes him so praiseworthy? What's so special about him? As we look at our passage this morning, uh, it's the logical connection we see between his humiliation and his exaltation is found in his obedience. We see in verse 8, it's found in his obedience. We see Christ humbled himself, By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the key idea that Paul is getting across to us, Christ's obedience. And when we think about Christ's obedience, we need to understand, loved ones, that this is covenant language. It's covenant language that points us back uh, before creation to uh, the covenant made between The persons of the Godhead, the covenant that I referred to a bit uh, last week. This is the covenant that we often uh, speak about uh, and call the covenant of redemption, or sometimes it's even referred to as the eternal covenant of grace. And we see this covenant described in John chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 5, which was our second reading from this morning. In this passage, and Jesus' high priestly prayer that Jesus is there praying to the Father and he speaks about the arrangement or, or the covenant that they made together before creation. Listen again to John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. And notice how Jesus speaks about why he came into the world, what he accomplished in his mission, and what he expects the Father uh, to, to do for him in response to his finished work. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice that Jesus here in verse 4 refers to the work that you, speaking to the Father, that you gave me to do. And that the goal of his work, we see, is first to glorify God on earth, and secondly, it was to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. We, as we look at these verses, we see that the two actually flow into each other, that Jesus was to glorify God by giving eternal life to all that the Father had given him to all of his people, and so Jesus was to complete a work. He came to, to uh, finish a mission or, or to fulfill an agreement that he had with the Father. And in order to complete anything, we know that requirements must be met. Right? It's part of an agreement. There are requirements that must be met. And so what was required? What was required of the Lord Jesus? What was required was his obedience. We see in John chapter 17 that Jesus in eternity, he covenanted with the Father or he promised that he would fulfill everything that is necessary for his people to be saved. That he would fulfill all righteousness. That he would fulfill all the obedience that was required of his people that obedience that Adam failed to show to God, that obedience that even Israel failed to show to God, that you and I failed to show to God. Jesus would show that obedience to the Father in our place, as our representative. And Jesus would do this by taking on human nature and by bearing the curse of, Or or the penalty of our sin. This is sometimes referred to as his passive obedience. That by his passive obedience, what Jesus did is, throughout his whole life, he suffered for the sins of his people. The first sin that Adam committed, but also the sins that you and I commit on a daily basis. That during his lifetime, by his passive obedience, Jesus suffered the curse of those sins, the penalties he bore upon himself. And not only that, but we read in the New Testament about Jesus' active obedience. And this is what Jesus did positively in his lifetime to actively fulfill all that the Father required. So during his lifetime, he bore our guilt, he bore our shame, he bore the curse for our sin, and he also actively fulfilled the law. Not just a little bit, but perfectly, completely. We sometimes say that he kept the law perfectly for his people. He fulfilled it for his people. He paid for Adam's sin. He paid for our sins. And then he did everything that the law required of us. So in a sense, what Jesus did is he perfectly fulfilled the covenant of redemption. That covenant that he had with the Father before time see loved ones that covenant for you and for me for those who believe that covenant is a covenant of grace right? because we are in that covenant not by our works but because of grace but for Christ for Christ it was a covenant of works it was a covenant that he fulfilled by his merits and loved ones the good news of the gospel is that he fulfilled it he fulfilled it perfectly. And that's why he is now enthroned in heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And we read in Philippians 2 that he is there. Not only that he is there, but that he is highly exalted. And that he has been given the name that is above every name. What is that name? Well, the Apostle Paul uh, doesn't specify what the name is, but It seems clear from the context that the name being referred to is Lord. That Jesus is now enthroned in heaven, ruling and reigning over all creation as Lord of all. As the sovereign over all. And so we as a church, we praise him and we glorify and honor him because he is Lord. See, because he has accomplished this work on our behalf, he is not only the sovereign Lord, but loved ones. He is our obedient Lord who accomplished all that was necessary for our salvation. And secondly, we see that Christ in his exaltation, by his exaltation, we now have our flesh in heaven. Not only do we see him exalted as our obedient Lord, but we see him exalted there, and we can say as a church that he is there and remains our representative before the Father. Because the fact that Jesus is now enthroned in heaven, uh, is significant because he's located there, loved ones, according to his human nature. Think about the fact that his body is now at the right hand of the throne of God. The same body that he was raised in in his resurrection, the same body that he appeared to his disciples in those 40 days before his ascension, it's that same body that was ascended and that is now seated there at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. And we noted last Sunday in verses 6 through 8 the contrast that Paul makes between Christ's pre-incarnate existence in the form of God and then his existence after his incarnation in the form of a servant or in his human form. Now listen to verses 6 through 8 of Philippians 2 again just to uh, remind ourselves of of what Paul was referring to. We read in verse 6 that who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is pointing out here is that Christ went from being in the form of God. What was that form again? Remember, it was the form that he took, that he had in which he was equal in glory with the Father and the Spirit, it was the form that he had before he became incarnate, before he veiled himself in our flesh in order to accomplish our salvation. And what Paul is pointing at, loved ones, is that Christ is now the God-man. Fully God, but he also remains fully man. This is important for us to consider this morning because, you know, as we, as we think about Christ's enthronement in heaven, his exaltation there at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to understand, loved ones, that he will never cease being human. He will never cease being human. He will always be there next to the Father in his human form as our prophet, priest, and king. He will be there until he returns for his church. And Christ is their loved ones, at this very moment for our interest, for you and for me. And this is why the Heidelberg Catechism comforts us by saying that we have our flesh in heaven. I'm sure that some of you uh, recognized that phrase from the sermon outline. Right? We have our flesh in heaven. And, and what the catechism is getting at here is, That we have one in heaven, loved ones, who is like us, who knows our infirmities, who knows what it is like to be human and to have the struggles that we have, the shortfalls that we have, the difficulties that we have. He is like us in every way, yet without sin, and he is there now at the right hand of the throne of God, and he remains our representative before the Father. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, this wonderful assurance. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John is pointing out there that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. right? And this is referring to the fact that he is our helper. It's... The idea of of us having an attorney in a legal matter. And so John is getting at the fact that our Lord Jesus is in heaven, and he is at this very moment pleading our cause. He's pleading our cause so that whenever Satan accuses us or seeks to lay a charge against us before the Father, it's Jesus Christ, God's own Son, the one who is like us in every way yet without sin. Jesus Christ, our flawless advocate, is there pleading our cause, interceding for us, ready to help us in our time of need. He is there pleading his blood for our sake. Loved ones, think about that. Christ is our prayer partner in heaven. He intercedes for us before the throne. He is there, and he is there not just as exalted Lord, but he's there as our brother, as our advocate, as the one who knows us even better than we know ourselves, as one who is like us. And so in this way, loved ones, he continues to serve us. You know, we noted last Sunday Jesus' words from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus said when he was on earth during his ministry, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, we read this verse and we can sometimes get so focused on what he accomplished for us that we forget about his ongoing ministry to us, about our ongoing union and and communion with him as he is there seated at the right hand of, of the Father. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, and he, he says, you know, Christ has an ongoing ministry for his people toward his people. And Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That he has this ongoing ministry toward you and toward me, loved ones. He remains our brother, our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we see thirdly in Philippians chapter 2, as Paul describes the exaltation of Christ, Paul also points to the fact that you and I know how this story ends. The Bible clearly reveals how all of history will end, and it will end in the exaltation of Christ to the glory of God the Father. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here is assuring us, loved ones, that there will come a day in which the whole universe, the whole universe, things seen and unseen, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day... Every knee should bow. Bowing here reflects submission to a person of higher authority that we would submit to. Bowing is not so popular in our culture anymore, but it is in other cultures. We're familiar with what that looks like. And we see that while in this passage we do this now as a church, we bow before the Lord, we are We humbly submit ourselves before him. Loved ones, we know that there are many in the world that do not bow to Christ. They don't bow the knee. They remain hard-hearted, and they remain stubborn in their sin and, and unbelief. And not only that, but they actively oppose Christ and his church. And Paul says, Paul says here, that will soon all come to an end because those same people who now oppose Christ and who live in unbelief will see and be overtaken by his glory and by his dominion. And so if you are an unbeliever here this morning, I plead with you to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Christ to bow the knee, and to confess the lordship of Christ now. As you repent by the grace of the Holy Spirit and the grace that is found in Christ alone, as you repent and put your faith in the one who can save before it is too late. Because as the scriptures point so clearly here, on that last day when Christ returns and the resurrection of the dead takes place, you know, we will all be gathered into his presence. And we read here that we will all bow the knee. But those who believed and who trusted him on earth, we will be bowing out of reverence and out of joy as we look upon our Savior, as we look upon the one that we have longed to see all of our lives. But there will be others who did not believe, who opposed him while uh, they lived. And they will also be bowing, but they will be bowing to the righteous judge. They will be bowing in terror, in fearful expectation of the judgment and the condemnation that awaits all those who reject Christ during their lifetimes. Westminster Confession of Faith Chapter 33, Section 1, which is an excellent summary of of what we believe, especially according to uh, these uh, end times, it explains it this way, this last day, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and all judgment has been given by the Father. In that day... Not only shall the apostate angels be judged, but also shall all people who have ever lived on earth appear before the judgment seat of Christ in order to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds and to receive judgment according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. For all those outside of Christ, they will be judged according to the covenant of works, the covenant that we break, In thought, word, and deed, but those who found their faith in Christ and who sought refuge in him during their lives, they will be judged according to a different covenant, a covenant of grace that was given to us by uh, the Lord and that we were called into by grace. And so, friends, even as we long for that day when Christ will return, and, and we do long for it, don't we? We do long for it and we desire to see him face to face. We pray with the church throughout the ages, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for this. We at the same time need to understand that Christ is already ruling and reigning over all things. He is at this very moment extending his lordship and exerting his sovereignty over all things. He is already a king with a kingdom, but for now, that kingdom is visible primarily through his church. As we uh, gather Sunday after Sunday to hear the word preached, we gather to celebrate the sacraments, to receive uh, the grace of God through the means that he has ordained, to be cared for by elders, to share in each other's gifts and graces. You know, these, these very ordinary means of God, these are God's ordinary ways of showing his extraordinary uh, supernatural power. This is God's way of of showing right now the dominion of Christ as Christ by his authority is causing people through the Holy Spirit to turn from darkness to light, from death to life, bringing them from the kingdom of Satan to his own kingdom. You know every time we see a person putting their faith in Christ. You know what we're seeing? Is we're seeing evidence of the kingdom of Christ expanding, growing like the seed in the field that grows into a plant that grows so big that it eventually takes up everything. And so at this very moment, Christ is reigning invisibly over all the nations and empires and corporations of this world. World. And the writer of Hebrews says, you're not know, at present at this very moment. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ, but we soon will. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, when his reign will become visible to all. So, loved ones, we, we know how the story ends because Jesus is the Lord of all of history. While we experience difficulties and trials in this life, illnesses, pain, suffering, the good news of the gospel is that this is only for a moment, only for a short while in comparison with the eternal glory that awaits us with Christ our Savior. I want to conclude with what Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 4. eternal. Amen. Let us pray.